we are the Podbean featured podcast of the month this month. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host the Great Trials Podcast. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Check it out. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. When he got confronted with, okay, now you agree with this, and this should have been done, and you would have done this, he kind of nodded his head when he walked out of the courtroom because he knew that you know, it became an issue of, am I going to tell the truth or am I going to try to protect? And I'm going to tell the truth. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I am good, Steve. How are you? How was your vacation? Uh, it was a whirlwind. Uh, we had a great time visiting all the historical sites uh, all up and down the East Coast. But I can tell you my girls by the end of it were uh, they did not want to do another tour. In fact, they said that the, la we, the last city we ended up in before we went to my uh, 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 wife's parents uh, was that um, uh, Boston and they specifically asked her like, we're not going to do another tour are we <laughs> I was like all right we're done we're done with tours but we're gonna see some historical stuff and uh, we had a great time though oh well that's awesome well welcome back it's always so fun to dig back into work after being out for oh, a yeah. week isn't it exactly exactly <laughs> you know you try not to check emails constantly but uh I can't help myself you know that yeah, yeah, I do. I know how it is. Well, um, let's introduce our guest to everybody. Um, our guest today, I'm very excited, is Tracy Delacona. She is from the Delacona Law Firm in Macon, Georgia. And you can look her up at delaconalaw.com. That's D-E-L-L-A-C-O-N-A law.com. Tracy, welcome to the show. And tell us, before we get into telling our listeners about you, um, have you been able to take any vacations, any time off this summer? Thank you for having me. I was really looking forward to this today. Uh, actually, I just got back from Amelia Island with my daughter and son-in-law, husband and granddaughter. So that was fun. Um, we had a little bit of a hiccup because my I have three German Shepherds, a mom, dad, and a baby, but he's a hundred pounds, 18 months old. He was bitten by a rattlesnake on Friday and we oh, were no. leaving Saturday morning. So I had to go into the nurse mode and <laughs> get healthcare instituted, get him situated. My brother and sister-in-law came and stayed with him. And it was just, you know, one of those frightening things you just have to deal with, but we did go and enjoy a good time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's And wow. he's doing okay. He's great. Okay. He's right. great. Wow. Uh, wow that public, is scary. Public service announcement. If you have a dog that gets bitten by a venomous snake, get them to the ER, kind of like a stroke or heart attack case before four hours to get the antivenom so that they can get everything they need in order to fight it and be okay. Yeah, I mean, that's great advice. And we should tell our <laughs> listeners. I, I was that, just uh, thinking this. <laughs> yeah, that uh, 
Wait, were you thinking about about uh, that we have a, a case? I know. I, I wasn't sure if you were talking <laughs> we, about that. We don't, we don't need to get into that, but we, but Tracy, we are going to call you and your dog to trial. Yeah. We, okay. We, what <laughs> should a, be done? Yes. He's a specimen. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, but the reason you can uh, that that Tracy knows what she's talking about is because Tracy is and she is a registered nurse. She has her MBA and she has her JD. Um, so she's a she's at least a triple threat, if not more. Um, Tracy graduated um, in 1985 from University of Southern Mississippi with her nursing degree. She worked as an emergency department nurse and a cardiac care nurse for several years in North Carolina um, before moving to Georgia to attend law school. In 94, she got her law degree from Mercer University, where a couple of our partners went as well. And she started up her firm and then in 2007, she was like, I, I just don't have enough degrees. Right. Um, so Tracy went and got her um, MBA from Wesleyan College. And she, Tracy has just, she's gotten terrific results. Um, she serves as a, in her cases, she serves as a legal consultant on medical issues on TV. Um, she's um, given back to the legal community. She served in leadership roles. Um, she's been at the president of the middle, the middle Georgia trial lawyers association and an at large vice president for the Georgia trial lawyers association. She's a member of the million dollar advocates forum, multiple times, super lawyer, all the awards, um, that you would expect, um, from somebody of her caliber and, like I said, she's gotten great results, including the case that we're going to talk about today. Um, so Tracy, again, thank you for being here. Um, and thank you for making me sound. Good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's all you. That's all you. I'm just t- I'm just telling it like it is. Um, well, so let me dig into the facts of your case. I'll tell our listeners a little bit more about it, and then we'll just really dig into it. Um, so the name of the case is Ellen Wadsworth versus Gregory Howland, PA, Paul Poshchin. Poshchin, is that right? Mm-hmm. That's right. I, I, I asked before we started recording, and I still, then I, I forgot. Can, I, can, I can see you doubting yourself like, as oh, you were saying. It. Yep. You, you could see that in my brain. Um um, MD and Georgia EM, I guess it's EMI medical services. That's right. Okay. Um, so Ellen Wadsworth was 61 years old at the time. She went to the emergency room, um, which was transported there by EMTs on Thanksgiving day in 2008. And as all lawyers know, um, <laughs> nothing uh, good happens on a holiday, holiday in yeah. the hospital already. Not good. Um, So Ellen arrived and she was complaining about severe pain in both of her legs. Her legs were cold and uh, she saw a physician's assistant in the emergency room. And um, after a brief physical exam and an ultrasound to check for vein problems, the physician's assistant decided that she had cellulitis, which is a fancy word for something most of us have had, which is just a bacterial skin infection. You might have had that near a bug bite or something like that. Um, There was no testing done of Ellen's arteries. Uh, So the PA is uh, Mr. Howland. The supervising physician, uh, Dr. Poshchin, Poshchin, oh man, the supervising physician, as I'll call him from here on out, um, signs off on the PA's diagnosis and doesn't really, you know, lay hands on Ellen or, or kind of really do any of his own separate exam. They send Ellen home. 
despite her, her, you know, basically her complaints of pain and her explicit requests to be admitted to the hospital on Thanksgiving day. Um, they send her home home anyway, um, after giving her morphine, and roughly about six hours later, uh, Ellen returns to the emergency room after again transported by EMTs after collapsing in her home. And it's discovered at that point that she has arterial blockages in both of her lower legs. And so on December 4th, 2008, Ellen had to undergo a double leg amputation below the knee. So both of her legs were amputated below the knee. Um the defense in the case, I, I want to come back to it because I'm actually just not sure that I understand what the defense of the case was. <laughs> um, so let's skip that for now um, and just assume that there was some defense of the case. <laughs> I, I, I know, according to the defense, what the important word is, and that's pulses. There that's you go. Pulses. That's that's right. pulses. <laughs> so we'll dig, we'll dig into it, but I'm still just not sure I get it. Um, so let me skip to the verdict and then we'll circle back. <laughs> okay. Um, a great result from a Gwinnett County jury in um, here in Georgia in 2012. Um, they found in favor of Ellen. They awarded her $5 million in damages. And one of the things that I think a lot of our Georgia listeners in particular are wondering is you've got you've got an emergency room setting factoring in here. And, and here in Georgia, um, there is a different standard for emergency medical care in terms of what you have to show to um, in your burden of proof as a plaintiff than there is for regular non-emergency medical care. Um, and the jury here actually made a finding on your verdict form that this was not emergency medical care. And so the ordinary negligence standard applied in addition to finding the verdict in your favor. Um, there's so much to get or in your client's favor, I should say. There's so much to get into, but Tracy, I'm hoping, especially for our listeners outside of Georgia, if you can start with um, kind of explaining for our listeners just an overview of this difference between emergency medical care versus ordinary medical care, what you were looking at in this case and why it, it matters. Well, I think a lot of people got scared about emergency cases after the 2005 tort reform when all this came out. And it did not, maybe I was naive at that point because I thought, okay, well, that's easy enough to prove because to me, the intention was that if someone, the whole point was if someone came in, they can't give you their history, you're unfamiliar with that particular patient in the emergency room. And my husband is an emergency room physician. He's retired now, but I worked in the emergency room. So there are times when people come in in, you know, that type of situation where you can't find out, are you allergic to this medicine? Um, you know, do you want this to be done? All types of procedures and treatments that you can give that may end up being harmful just because you don't have access to this person's history. They've never been to the ER at that particular hospital before, you know, at, during that time, there weren't a lot of EMRs, electronic medical records. So you may not be able to get the information in time. So to me, and I believe a lot of attorneys in Georgia felt like the only reason that that statute was instituted was to protect healthcare providers in that situation, which 
most of us didn't have a problem with, you know, we can understand that, but it went further, you know, with the defense trying to use it. Oh, was, you're in the emergency room. It must be emergency care. Right. No, that's not how it works. So I think when we looked at the case, we were approaching it from a standpoint of, okay, let's take that statute and look at it and determine what each part means and how it applies or does not apply to this case. And then let's do the case from the beginning to the end with the complaint affidavits, the questions and the depositions to get us to where we knew we could get to a jury. And that's how we planned it. You know, the team, all of us together, you know, Jerome Gattreau and Virgil Adams and Caroline Harrington, we all worked very hard on doing that, no matter who was doing the questioning. And so it was very important to me. And I feel like I do this anyway about establishing the stability of the patient in the ER. I think you have a easier time when they send them home. I mean, it's hard for right. a doctor or somebody to say the patient's not stable. If you send them out of the ER, they can claim they're, Oh, we were given emergency care the whole time they're there. But when they walk out the door, you weren't. So right. Right. at least you have, five, 10, 15, 20 minutes that they cannot say the patient wasn't stable. Um, I think it's a little bit harder. Uh, and I don't remember the name of the case. It might've been bond where one of the cases where the patient was stable, then emergent, then stable. <laughs> so it's a little bit harder when you're going back and forth with the changes in, that meet the definitions in this particular statute in the emergency care gross negligence statute. So um, trying to show that it's not emergency care, that wrong care is no care. And that I think that's a lot of the arguments we made and a lot of the questioning we used was you weren't given the correct care. So that's gross negligence because the wrong care is no care. doesn't matter what you did. Right. And that's how we approached it from that standpoint versus ordinary care right. where you're only having to show, you know, with a preponderance of the evidence that, okay, you messed up. You didn't meet the standard of care. Whereas in gross negligence, you know, and I'm not sure anybody really <laughs> understands how you get from that burden of proof yeah. preponderance to clear and convincing you just either you messed up, you didn't. And if you messed up badly enough, it's gross negligence as far right. as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. To me, um, well, a couple of things here. One is the, I, I thought, I mean, the, the jury in this case obviously found ordinary negligence and the case went up to the court of appeals and got upheld by the court of appeals. Um, but I actually thought against the doctor, at least you had a pretty good case for uh, gross negligence because the doctor didn't even see the patient, didn't, you know, basically just signed off on what the PA found. Um, so I, you know, at least in my mind, I don't know how you discharge somebody from the ER without ever 
seeing them, laying hands on them, making sure that the right things were done. Um, so, but I mean, uh, I, I do think that I think it all comes down in, in this case and in any ER cases is whether or not it is emergency medical care. And that's what the jury decided was that this was an emergency medical care. And so therefore it's the ordinary negligence standard. But, um, but I actually thought if they had decided gross negligence, you st- it, at, at least, I mean, the PA, I think you had a good case against him too, but at least against the doctor who didn't even see the patient. I don't know how that's not grossly negligent. Well, you know, in in most emergency rooms, they have mid-level providers and in a lot of other areas as well. And PAs and nurse practitioners, they don't have to have the doctor come in and see that patient. I mean, clearly, if the patient is deemed, you know, more emergent in the top two categories, then a physician should see the patient. But if they deem them to be you know, ESI three, which is just kind of ordinary, or they decide they're in the, as we quoted, the stump the toe area, you don't need to be seen. It's not emergent. It's not even urgent, really. Then they don't have to be seen by a physician. And what has always bothered me and I used to counsel my husband on this when he was in the ER about don't be signing off on a PA's chart without knowing that that's what really was wrong with that patient. Um, And that's what happened in this case. Dr. Postian signed off on the medical record for Mr. Howland before even the medical record wasn't even in the computer at the time and and available to him at the time he rubber stamped it. So he really hadn't even read the record. And then he came in the next day and signed off on it. So he did not have all the information. So really, he was approving care that he didn't even really know what the care was. So that was his problem. One of them. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that I, I thought, um, would be helpful to know. And, and and it sounds like from the, from the opening and closing that you all were able to really clearly establish through testimony was that, you know, coming in with these, the symptoms that Ellen had, you know, that, that you had, I guess these, you know, three potential outcomes, you know, you had a potential vein issue or a DVT issue, which they did do the ultrasound for. You had this cellulitis issue, that they ended up going with, but that they didn't do anything for the, for the, to check her arteries, which was, um, arguably the, the most dangerous thing that, that it could have been. And it was the one that they didn't look for. Can you talk a little bit just about, um, what they could have done to look for it and how it sounds like that it really wouldn't have been, um, that hard to do? Well, I think when In the closing argument, I think I'm the one that said something about they'd heard differential diagnosis, so they didn't want to hear it anymore. And they knew what the four parts were. And every medical student and certainly the members of the jury knew that you're supposed to do this and put the worst thing on top. And the problem with Mr. Howland's exam was that this lady was complaining of pain inability to walk. She actually told him, you know, which of course this stuff never appears in the records mm-hmm. that she had to crawl down the hall to get to the phone to call 911. She could not walk. And that's 
abnormal. If somebody can't walk into the ER and they can't walk out because of pain and issues that should alert you that this is a life-threatening, limb-threatening situation, then you don't just send them home. And you have to know, okay, this symptomology presentation by this patient, what does it mean? Well, her symptoms did not really go into the category of a venous problem, a vein problem, a blood clot in the vein. I mean, one or two did, but then there were so many hallmark signs that indicated arterial. You don't have coldness and pain like she had, eight of 10 pain requiring repetitive doses of morphine. Right. To control that. And I think one of the things that probably angered the jury a little bit was because the test to check the arterial areas to see if there were clots, it was done with the same machine. You just flipped a switch. So it's not like she had to get scheduled for some kind of test more so than what he was already doing. And the fact that he only checked one leg when she was complaining of pain and coldness in both. And then he ordered the incorrect treatment for even the diagnosis he made. So that was interesting to watch the defense attorney get up and have to argue in opening or make a statement in opening, opening that this was a mistake and he didn't really mean <laughs> to order that. So he started off with a mistake having to backpedal from the get-go. Yeah. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not gonna come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie yeah. cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. 
so they can and I can't remember what you call, it, but when you come into the ER, you go to basically a triage and they categorize you as a one through five, Correct. one being like the most emergent five being not an emergency at all. <laughs> and in this case, they were, she was categorized as a four and it was non-emergent. What, who, who, who categorized her? Was it the PA or was a it nurse. a triage nurse before it's that? It's a okay. nurse. Okay. Yeah. And is the nurse at that point doing a uh, differential diagnosis or is it, I mean, when you're doing a triage? She, in a way she is, she's, you know, what always amazes me is when we get in these cases that all of a sudden the nurses are just idiots, according to their attorneys or the hospital, you know, and not that they're idiots, but that they have no responsibility <laughs> whatsoever. And they're just there to take vital signs or give medicines or shots. And that's not true. You know, they're very professionally trained and many times can save a patient's life by intervening or advocating for the patient, which they're required to do when we have a case up on appeal right now um, that the defense has asked for cert from the Georgia Supreme Court because they were trying to say the nurses don't have any responsibility. Yes, they do. Mm -hmm. So there was a good nurse there in this hospital and she assessed this girl, well, assessed Ellen as somebody who maybe was a four, but then she became aware of all these complaints and problems and was trying to advocate for her and was just ignored by them uh, about it. So it was clear that she was in a lot of pain and initially should have probably been a two or a three and then probably progressed to a two, but they don't usually change that designation. Once you get in there, you're just treated differently or moved right. to a different area, but not recategorized. So, um, it can be, you know, it can be kind of shaky if somebody doesn't know what they're doing and they're put in that position to put somebody where they don't, okay, we don't have to worry about them. They're a one, two, you know, maybe a three. So they don't get the same attention that a four or five gets. But And was this the nurse that it sounded like from your closing that maybe in her deposition, she didn't have sort of an independent re recollection of Ellen. But then when she saw her at trial, more came back to her. It was. It was very interesting because she was still employed at that hospital in the ER when I took her deposition. So she was an adversarial witness at the time I took her deposition, even though the hospital wasn't being sued. And, you know, clearly she had been prepped for that type of position, didn't remember anything, mm -hmm. you know. And one of the issues was that, you know, Dr. Postian claimed that he saw Miss Wadsworth walk from one place to another. And that was part of the questioning for her, for her name was Boyette then. And then I think by the time she came to trial, it might've been Stinson, but um, she, you know, didn't remember anything about her. And I think she was being a little vague at her deposition, but I think she really didn't recall a lot about her, but it, we decided to call her at trial and I found out that she was no longer working there. And so I went to talk to her and found out, you know, 
she didn't really change her story or anything, but she just seemed more open to being questioned. But when she saw Miss Wadsworth, she remembered her specifically. I mean, it was like a light bulb. So all those times that you tell your client, well, don't box yourself in because something may come up that just triggers a memory and refreshes your recollection. So don't just mm-hmm. emphatically deny or say you don't remember, you do remember. And hers was a perfect example of it. And she was a really bright, engaging nurse. And she made a great witness. She never testified before. And she got up there and just told the truth and, you know, said, this is what I remember. I saw her and I remembered vividly what happened. Mm-hmm. And, um, one uh, a little interesting thing that happened with her uh, is I didn't know whether she would catch this or not, but I was hoping because she was a good nurse that from one nurse to another she would. And I went and picked up the um, defendant's exhibit of the arteries and veins because I had noticed when they were using it that in opening that they had mislabeled the arteries and veins, they were backwards. And so I held it up to her and asked her, do you you remember this exhibit? Do you see anything wrong with this exhibit? And she looked at it and she went, yeah, it's labeled wrong. (laughs) The veins are, they had the red veins, red and the arteries blue. And, you know, I had that happen to me once (laughs) with an exhibit about a real complex exhibit that I trusted a cardiothoracic surgeon to do a mistake. So um, it, oh. it is a terrible moment in the courtroom. When that yeah. I mean, it worked out well for you in this case, and I'm sure the jury absolutely loved it, but what that yeah. like, that's my personal nightmare. Like, yeah, yeah. It, it is, especially in medical cases that, I mean, even though I'm familiar with the things I didn't catch one little thing that was wrong on an exhibit one time. So it was, uh, I go over meticulously. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? I'm sure like defense lawyers are like, oh, we got Tracy because, you know, like we always got to learn the medicine and and do our best. But you have you have that background. Um, It does let me lawyers don't have. It lets me catch some things that when somebody says something that I know there's another part to it that maybe you wouldn't have looked at it because of what's going on in the case. But it does help sometimes. Right. Right. Um, and do you keep your, I think I saw in your bio, but I'm, I wasn't sure if it was outdated or not. Do you keep your, your registered nurse certification up to date? I do in case this wow. lawyer thing doesn't work out <laughs> right. to work as a nurse and make a living. <laughs> I don't know. It seems like it's going pretty well, but, uh, yeah. I love it. I love uh, it. So well, we went, ahead, so Yvonne, I, you were about to mention the defense uh, in this case. And, and if, if I understood what they were saying, right, it, it, so um, there were diminished pulses in her leg. And I, it was unclear to me whether or not they checked one leg or both leg. But the, the because there was a pulse they were taken in the leg, they were taking the position that there was no occlusion at the time that they saw her, except then there was, I think, an admission by their expert. And then even after they definitively showed that the uh, arteries were blocked, she still had diminished pulses, uh, you know, 
proving that uh, you can obviously have a pulse. And I, I, I like the, uh, I, I think it was uh, uh, Virgil Adams was uh, used the stealth bomber analogy that, uh, that he, these, you know, there was some stealth bomber bombing happened. And one of them was that the, you know, the after she uh, had already been found as having these arterial blockages, she still had pulses. Um, and so obviously that blows, blows their defense out, but that, that basically that was their defense, right? If there's a pulse, there's no occlusion, right? Yeah. They, their two defenses were that what you just said, if there's any type of pulse, there can't be an occlusion and then trying to go with the gross negligence protection over right. everything that the, there was no gross negligence, but you know, one good thing about trying cases with different people, which I've been very fortunate to do, is you get to have, to me, a lot of fun. When you get to that sleep deprivation mm-hmm. point, you're sitting up at 12, uh, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, going over stuff and planning and strategizing. And Virgil and I, I can remember we were in the, staying in a hotel up in Atlanta in Lawrenceville. And we were sitting there talking about right before we got to the last day on closing arguments. And I said, you know, that such bull you know, about the pulse and stuff. I said, you know, they don't even, they haven't even realized that it's in the record that there was, you know, a pulse after they admit that there was an occlusion. They hadn't even read those records, I guess. And, and he's, I said, it's like a bomb that's going to explode. And, you know, he's like, <laughs> you say that and then I'm going to, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to, that's great. That's going to be good. I like that. Yeah. Well, it was great. And I guess what I didn't finish on their defense is that, the, the, I mean, the, the other problem I thought I saw that with their defense is that if the occlusions aren't there when they first see her, then they, then basically they're giving this window you know, after she leaves the emergency room, that the occlusions have to just suddenly happen there to the point that she basically goes into cardiac arrest because of the the blockages. And that's what they tried to say, you know, is that she just spontaneously had these occlusions 12 hours after she left the emergency department, had nothing to do with when she was in the emergency department, just to you know, one of those happenstance events and um, that it didn't have any, she didn't have any of those signs and symptoms and wasn't even related. She had cellulitis, two leg, two foot complaint, one leg diagnosis because he didn't even write, um, Howland didn't even write anything in the record about, you know, one of her legs. So it was just kind of, I, it was an interesting defense, I'll say that. Right. You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and related to that, it sounds like one of the other ways that they um, got themselves in trouble was that th- at trial they had some experts who hadn't even read some of the important um, depositions, which and record looks good. Yeah, they. Well, when you know, it kind of it was. I, I don't ever understand that. Maybe you guys have run across this. I don't understand not making your experts fully informed. I mean, that was my favorite phrase to use in the trial was, well, you wanted to be fully informed, didn't you? Right. So you would have read that information. If you were going to come tell the jury something, you want to be fully informed before you tell them something under oath, right? So 
it started with Dr. Poston's deposition. He didn't even read one of the other depositions. He didn't even read or review the medical records before his deposition. And so to me, that's okay. You don't even care enough about this case or this lady to even read a little short ER record on right. this patient. And, and that's what happened with their experts. They hadn't read a lot of things. And I don't know if that's a strategy of we don't want you to be questioned about it or we don't want to pay mm-hmm. you to do it. Right. I don't understand. No, I, I, I'm the same way. And, you know, and this goes back to something we talk about every time on, it seems like every time on the show is, is that credibility is just so important. And mm-hmm. when you withhold records or you don't give them all the facts, I mean, it's just, it, for one, it's such an easy cross for the other side. Uh, you know, just don't you wish you had everything to review? I mean, what are they going to say? No, I, I never want everything to review. I want to just review part of the record. You know? Right. And, and it's such a disservice to your expert. I mean, you know, we, we have to think about this a lot because it's it's a defense strategy to file Dalbert motions and to attack experts, you know, even when they're perfectly well qualified and their opinions are well supported. But, you know, we have to really be careful to protect our experts and their ability to testify in other cases for either side. Um, but so, you know, from the standpoint of I know how upset experts get when they feel that they were not properly prepared for something or they were not properly defended in terms of, you know, a Dalbert motion. They have a a lawyer who kind of phoned it Mm in. Um, So to put your expert in that, um, you know, or your defendant in that situation of sort of rolling the dice and saying, you know, it's going to be our strategy to just not have you look at this information is... Yeah. If I were an expert, I would be mad. Well, yeah, they right. had the female PA that they had come in. Um, Jerome crossed her. And I believe during her deposition, you know, she was like, I don't know how they found me. You know, they just asked me to look at it, blah, blah, blah. Well, it turns out she was really good friends with um, the defense attorney's doctor. And that's how they got her. And that came out at trial. Mm. And that really hurt her credibility, Mm -hmm. you know, just like, well, you didn't tell us that, but you certainly knew that. And, you know, and I will say one of their experts, I think Dr. McDevitt was his name, the um, vascular guy. He told the truth when he got confronted with, okay, now you agree with this and this should have been done and you would have done this. He's, Yes. And, and yeah. he even, you know, he kind of nodded his head when he walked out of the courtroom because he knew that, you know, came an issue of, am I going to tell the truth or am I going to try to protect? And I'm going to tell the truth. And yeah. he, he was the expert who you uh, got to admit that if there's that you can have pulses and still have an occlusion or a partial occlusion. That's right. Yeah. Which was right in his wheelhouse to yeah. talk about. Um, you know, one interesting part of this case, since Yvonne loves Dr. Paulson's name so much, <laughs> <laughs> is Dr. An interesting part of this is Dr. Paulson failed his board six times. He was not board certified. So he could not 
and the judge ruled in our favor, he cannot get up there and say no one violated the standard of care and everybody did it right because then he's turned into an expert and he gets questioned about those six board failures. So we couldn't ask him about the board failures, but when I crossed him, I got up there and said, now you're not going to tell the jury that Mr. Howland did it right, are you? And you're not. Gonna I was wondering about that. <laughs> you're okay. not going to say you did it yeah. right either, are you? <laughs> I so see. Was, okay, that was kind of a fun part of that case to deal with. And then, you know, I think I even used it in the closing, saying he, you didn't hear him get up here and say they did it right. You did well. That's well. That's what I had seen was the closing, and I was like, I wonder why. But I didn't realize why he hadn't said that. Why yeah. he hadn't. Yeah. So that makes sense. No, and I thought the way you used it in closing was extremely effective. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, because, you know, every medical malpractice case you have, I mean, the the defendant doctor is always going to say, yeah, I acted within the standard of care and and, and I'm an expert because I'm a doctor. But that that is, uh, yeah, the the fact that he wasn't even able to say that. I mean, the jury, I mean, you did a great job of explaining why that's important. They may otherwise they may not realize what's going on, but uh but yeah, the, the fact that he's not even going to be able to say that he uh, acted within the standard of care is just uh, that's yeah. very important. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis (laughs) you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life. 
videos, they do settlement documentaries, they do demonstratives, and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. They had a good expert, Dr. Lyons, Matt Lyons, who was an ER doctor from over at the medical college. And he, he was very engaging, nice looking, um, you know, was doing a good job. And Virgil was sitting beside me. I think it was Virgil. It might have been Caroline. I'm going to throw up. <laughs> because he was, and I'm sure we've all had that experience. Oh, yeah. Where, and I was supposed to cross him, and I was sitting there thinking, oh, my God, because he was just going on and on and on. And But he spent the first 20 minutes, and you probably saw something in the closing about this. The first 20 minutes he spent talking about the ultrasound what are you talking about? There's right. nothing. So I look back at the clock when he started, I look back at the clock and wrote the time down because I thought, well, we got to start off with something to undermine this. So I was like, why are you wasting the jury's time talking about this? Did anybody over here say there was something wrong with the ultrasound? Did anybody say that it shouldn't been done or that it was done incorrectly? Well, no. Well, then why are you talking about it for 20 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> so that was, yeah. He was like, oh, God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's awesome. Um <laughs> I, so I do want to touch, we talked a lot about the standard of care, but I want to make sure, I don't know if we made this clear and I'm not sure I know the answer. Um, in terms of causation, if they had, if they had done the right thing the first time during that first admission and discovered those art arterial blockages, what options would, would they have had, or would you have been able to, to tell the jury that they would have had at that point? Well, they could have put her on heparin, IV, or even taken her and done, you know, maybe injections of TPA because it was not a plaque, you know, a fatty plaque, like heart attack, hardening or artery type thing. Mm -hmm. They were actual blood clots because you saw that like, well, you wouldn't have seen it, but <laughs> later on in the medical records, when she had surgery, they talked about the clots, the massive clots that they removed out of her arteries. So they could have given her a powerful, you know, anticoagulant like heparin, TPA, something like that. Or they could have done what they ended up doing was transferring her to a trauma one center like Matt, the medical center Navison Health and getting, you know, a vascular surgeon over there to go in, do a thrombectomy or whatever they needed to do or a bypass anything to save her legs, which, you know, one, I don't think it really became clear from the closings probably, but she almost put her line on the her life on the line to keep from losing her legs because when they told her they went in and they looked at everything they said there's nothing we can do we're going to have to amputate and she was well try something so they did a mm. uh, fasciotomy and some other procedures that you know would have been painful and would have you know 
caused disfigurement of her legs. But then, and she even, well, I want to be transferred somewhere else to get another opinion. But she became so septic from the rhabdo uh, myelitis, you know, from the muscle breakdown and everything, the sepsis that she developed, they had to do it to save her life at that point. I see. And I think one one thing we forgot to mention was, so at that point, she's at a different hospital, right? She's at the medical center, uh, Central Georgia MCCG in Macon. Yes. I think I forgot. I think I forgot to mention that because I didn't realize it in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) Full full disclosure. Right. Yeah. (laughs) She was finally transferred after she came back and they um, treated her to, you know, get her stable enough to transfer her. Um, She went to the medical center and stayed there and was amputated, then went to rehab for a while. Got it. Um, so just in general, I'm wondering when you see when cases like this come in, come into you um, and you're reviewing, you know, medical negligence cases or even when you're trying them. I'm just I'm really interested in hearing from you because there there are very few attorneys out there who also have a medical background. Um, and I, so I'm just wondering from your perspective how. You know, when these cases come in, do you look at them as a nurse first and then as a lawyer? Do you look at is it just sort of a combination? How much does it sort of affect just, you know, everything that you do when you're both screening these cases and you're you're working them up? Well, I think what you said is probably correct. It's a combination because, uh, as you both know, if you don't have a violation of the standard of care and you, or, and you can't prove causation, right. it, it doesn't matter right. what anybody did. And so you're looking, I am, when I'm reviewing them, I'm looking to see, okay, one, I'm looking to see what caused the injury? Could it have been prevented? Then I'm also looking at the same time, did you document what you were supposed to or have you changed the document, which is usually you can tell it's a little bit harder with uh, electronic medical records. But a lot of times, you know, before you get the audit trail, you can tell if you look at it and see how things are in order and how things are done. So I'm looking for that thinking, okay, well, that's good. That means somebody was worried if they're changing the record. And Mm -hmm. then I'm looking at, you know, well, are the damages enough? You know, is someone really hurt to the point that you know you're going to have to spend, you know, a great deal of money on that case? So are you going to be able to recover what you need to recover? And, yeah, I think we do a pretty good job of screening them. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there's very few, maybe in the early years that cases that especially one back then we tried two or three times. So I was like, my God, what were we thinking? But uh, one of those you wish I should have said no, I should have said no. But um, I think as it gets on, if you do this all the time, which, you know, people who try these kind of cases, they're the hardest cases, I think. Mm -hmm. Those and product liability cases, I think they're really hard. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of personal angst involved in medical malpractice cases. And so you're also at the same time looking at what happened, you're thinking venue, where is this? You know, Mm -hmm. do I have somebody where I can sue individually that takes it out of a bad venue? And you're also, I mean, is it somebody that I know that has a great reputation that's going to be hard to to, you know, overcome. So, it, yeah, you know, it depends. I'm sorry. I thought I put that on. No, no worries. Oh, well. It is, it is. I do think that there are, 
like for especially screening potential cases or reviewing potential cases, I think they're the hardest, not just because of the medicine, but also because I think um, it's also just like, it, no, it's, I think it's hard for people to get their minds around. And especially as we talked on the show a lot, when we talk about medical negligence cases and the trust that's involved and how people mm-hmm. can feel about how they've been treated is that there's so much emotion that goes along with it, that it can be really hard to tell people you were really treated really badly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you, but because of, you know, your injuries, because you weren't hurt badly enough or because your injuries aren't permanent enough that it's still going to be something that 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 no one's going to pursue for you it's just i think they're the hardest cases to well it's always have to have that that conversation with the client where where you're like something bad happened happened to you but it's yeah not worth going after Um, yeah i know kathy and i talk about that all the time and i'm I have a much easier time saying no than she does. (laughs) (laughs) And you would think it would be reversed, (laughs) but it's not, you know, I just, I don't have a hard time saying no because I explained to them, I do not want you to get into something that is going to be emotionally devastating for you could be financially devastating for you and just not, you're not going to have a good feeling about it. And, you know, I just, prefer not to get you into that, but you know, it'll, it'll be years of their life. I mean, that's right. And you don't want years of your life and then come out with nothing. I mean, that's, that, that's and yeah. be, you know, and especially with kid cases, you know, yeah. when you're dealing with children or a baby case, it's, they relive that so intently. And I know my eyes swell up, you know, and, and I have to try to make myself not cry, but it's hard not to when you're living with what your clients went through. And I can't think of anything worse than the loss of a child and having that was clearly preventable. But one thing you said, Yvonne, you were asking about in the trial about the using medical knowledge and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it has been an asset at times when I hear a defendant claim they did something and I know because I looked at a medical bill that that's not true and, you know and being able to say well a hospital if they don't do anything else they will bill you for everything <laughs> right. there's nothing right. that's going to escape that so it's not on this bill so where did that occur <laughs> you know? yeah yeah so that kind of thing it, it it makes it fun in the courtroom, especially when somebody else is questioning someone and I hear something I know is incorrect that I can write it down and slide it to them and say, look at this. Yeah. 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 Um, so related to that, um, you mentioned this earlier, but I, I would love your perspective on what you do um, with audit trails. So so for our listeners that um, that don't know or, or, or don't do medical malpractice, you know, you get the medical um, record, which is electronic now, but you can also get the audit trail, which will tell you when things were entered into the record, when the record was accessed. So, um, when you, when you get those, Tracy, what are, what are you looking for? Well, First, I want to get the actual audit trail. (laughs) Well, right. That's easier said than done. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's something that I think you have to take the time to learn the medical records. I was having a discussion with somebody the other day about 
that audit trail and I was talking about a particular software that a hospital used. And that person said to me, I'm about to throw up. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I'm thinking that I must have screwed up 10 cases before now by not knowing that. And I, I said, well, trust me, there's a lot of this I just learned in the last two years but, yeah. and making myself learn that kind of thing. But I think that's one thing that the other side fights on more than anything is the actual audit trail. And you have to have a judge who will listen and understand that when you want a 30 v. 6 deposition a with somebody in IT and somebody who is responsible for those electronic medical records, there's a reason you need it and want it because you've not been given what you're supposed to have because there should be a data access log, not just somebody when they signed in the record and here's their ID number and, you know, what time they signed in or they that they wanted to view or print you should actually have an entry for every entry in that medical record, every mm -hmm. electronic progress note, every electronic nurse's note. You should be able to pull that up and it says audit trail inquiry and it should have a step-by-step word every entry in the medical record you should see it over here and if they deleted it changed it mm -hmm. edited it, and it's not one of the softwares that comes up in the electronic medical record that shows lines through it or says addendum or says modified or whatever it may not show you exactly what was modified it just may say the word modified mm -hmm. okay well what was modified and they're required by law to give you that and they'll take a stance that says no we're not and we don't have to and that's protected by some contract between them and the software company well right no you don't, yeah. you can't go around federal law with a private contract sorry right. that's not how that works but it is it takes a lot of time a lot of money a lot of effort to make them turn it over yeah and i think it's people get frustrated with it and want to give up i'm you know, i'm in the middle of a fight right now uh with a defense attorney filing a motion for protective order over that very thing because saying, well, you already took those depositions. No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I agree with you on, on, uh, the abuse of the, uh, you know, or not producing audit trails, but also just the, in my opinion, the abuse of the peer review privilege and, you know, claiming that everything is peer review when, you know, it's so, some stuff may legitimately be peer reviewed, but there's a lot that, that goes to them that is underlying records that is, is not uh, peer review privilege. And, but I, it gets raised in almost every case that we have, it feels like now. Well, I think one thing that maybe some attorneys don't realize is that when you file a case, the defense attorneys a lot of times are getting the electronic medical record in a whole different format than you're getting it. Mm -hmm. You're getting a printout or a scan from some company like Psyox or somebody mm -hmm. like that. And they're getting the actual color coded electronic record that you know, has all these different parts that don't show up on the printout. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of folks don't know. I don't know. 
that you need to request not only the medical record and the audit trail, but each one of these programs has message boxes or inboxes or little uh, pop-up alerts, um, best practice alerts, that type of thing that you don't see. But they mm-hmm. may have popped up and told the provider, you need, don't give that medicine and here's why. Mm. And they can choose to ignore it or follow it. But you'll never see that if you don't get every piece of the record that the software provides. And they're not going to tell you it exists. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah. Very so. good. Very good. Well, uh, you have to learn it to, yeah. to do it. So. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that, and that's, that is so important. And, and it's something that you just have to kind of go through it time and time again before you, and, and beat your head against the wall several times, and, you know, before you finally uh, figure it out. And, it, and it's, uh, it's painful to do, but it's so important to the case. It is. Um, I, I had a question about, uh, I'm, I'm sort of jumping ahead a little bit, but not, not too, too much, but, um, I don't know whether or not you got a chance to talk to the jury in this case, but I was wondering, you know, we, we pointed out right at the beginning that this, this happened on Thanksgiving. And of course we look at that and say, you know, okay, it's, it's Thanksgiving. No doctor wants to be there. Nobody, you know, and staff wants to be there. They want to get home, watch football, have dinner with their family, that kind of stuff. The, did you, if you got a chance to talk to the jury, did you ask them or did they, did they tell you that? Yeah, we saw it was on Thanksgiving. We know, you know, they're going to be trying to rush people in and out. They're not going to do things the way they should, you know, and as on, uh, you know, many holidays, did, did they already have that feeling or is that, or did that come out during voir dire or anything? It like came that? out in voir dire. Okay. You know, we've certainly brought that up about how many people, uh, believe that if you go to the hospital on a holiday or a weekend, you get, less care than you would if you went on a regular day. And we had, besides addressing it with the jury, we'd already already addressed it with the judge because this lady was 60 something years old. She had been to the emergency room, you know, a number of times previously. And the defense wanted to put in all those medical records into evidence. And we argued against it saying, and they, I said, because what does that have to do with anything? These are her legs. It has nothing to do with the medical issues in the case now. There was only two times she had gone for leg issues. One was a sprained ankle and one was an abrasion when she fell one time. And so the judge, thank goodness, ruled in our favor because they wanted to try to say well, she was using the emergency room as her primary care doctor. Mm-hmm. And, and in some instances she was, but it's not like she could go see her primary care doctor on Thanksgiving. They were closed. So that's one of our arguments about that. But um, an interesting part of the voir dire that kind of ties into what you were asking, Steve, is we came down to two. We had to pick between two individuals as a last juror. Uh, One was a hospital, a retired hospital executive. And the other one was a workers comp insurance adjuster. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And so we reasoned that the insurance adjuster would be better because she evaluates injuries and knows what it costs to take care of somebody. And she ended up being the four person and did was a advocate for Miss Wadsworth. But we did talk to um, the jury and afterwards, and they were pretty on top of that, you know, you don't, on a 
holiday or weekend, you're not going to get the top care that you might would have gotten because everybody, if everybody's sick, everybody's going to be there and everybody's wanting to get out of there and go home to their own families. And so they're trying to rush through to get through the shift, through the patients and um, things get missed, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, well, as usual, we get so excited about the liability and, and we don't talk a lot about damages. Um, but Tracy, reading your we were talking about this before we started rec- recording about your your closing because you tr- you were reading back at it because you tried this case a while ago and you were you were um, giving yourself a hard time. I thought it was terrific. Um, Thank you. (laughs) But one of the things that I love that you did that I got chills just reading the transcript was you had said, you had made this point that to the jury during your close that, you know, we've, we've stood up X number of times when you all have come in and left the room and Ellen will never be able to do that mm-hmm. again. And it was just the way you were able to tie that into what had happened when everybody was together in the courtroom was just such a great idea. I thought that was so effective, even though it's not, you're not talking about how much pain she's in. You're not talking mm-hmm. about some super fun activity necessarily that she can't do anymore, but you are talking about something that everybody's been doing without really thinking too much about it um, during the trial that she can't do anymore. Yeah, it was, that came up in one of our late night kind of, uh, you know, jazz sessions and talking about <laughs> right. things. And, you know, I had mentioned to the other attorneys, I said, you know, you think about how many times we stood up when they came in and what's other times that everybody has to stand up and it's just something you don't think about, you know, but everybody does it. And now she can't ever do it. But I think the way it all came about was you probably saw something in the closing as well. And you could not have planned this, but we had somebody there trying that was taking care of her and helping her because we had to focus on the trial. And so when she had to go to the restroom and, you know, go different places, we had this person helping her. Interestingly enough, that courtroom in the Gwinnett County Courthouse the bathroom that was handicapped accessible was all the way across the courthouse. It was not right outside the courtroom. So she had to go out, get on an elevator, go down, go all the way across the foyer into the courthouse, into the other part of the courthouse to go to the restroom. And the jury was waiting on her to come back one day and you know, we were all sitting there and, you know, we went up to the judge and said, judge, we need to explain to the jury why she's not here yet. And why they're being, why they're having to wait is a delay. And he let us do it, you know, and we explained to him. And then I mentioned it again in the closing argument that that's what she has to put up with the rest of her mm-hmm. life is being mm-hmm. inconvenience that none of us have to. Right. Right. Exactly. So I- Go ahead, Justine. Uh, no, well, I was just—I was just going to mention that uh, there was something else I read in the closing, which I, I didn't know if this happened in deposition or if it happened during the trial testimony that you just took such good advantage of, which I always love when that happens when an expert or a defendant says something on the stand. But I think it was something to the effect of that if she needed to come back to the emergency room, she could just roll back in. 
that so was course, in deposition. Okay, yeah, I was going to say so. So of course you you made sure to bring that up, but I mean, the, I mean to use the words "roll back uh, in" when she's you know had yeah. to have her legs amputated and is only going to be uh, using a wheelchair from the. I would hope that that would slip of the tongue would not have happened from a witness, you know, when it's so clear, that's what she has to do. But I think it did happen. If I remember correctly in the deposition, that's what he said when, when I was examining Dr. Paulston, I think he said that and um, several other things that he was very argumentative in his deposition, which he had calmed down a lot. By the time he got to trial was most of them do, but that was just a terrible faux pas for him to make about her you know you just have to take those and run with them when they give you those gifts yeah so did you have ellen there every day for trial we did and and what did you do with her in terms of um her testimony and and how'd she do did they cross her Uh, they did but not very effectively from what i'm I don't think they asked, but maybe I think they asked two questions. Maybe if I remember correctly, it, it was the smart thing to do mm-hmm. by them. But I know that she was, it was funny. I think Jerome Gautreaux did her direct. <laughs> and so he was asking her about what she needed to take care of herself. <laughs> and he said something about, a, you know, a handicap accessible van. And we had gone over mm-hmm. with her. We had gotten estimates and showed her, you know, we didn't have a life care plan on her. We just decided to go with, let's just let people make a decision about how, whether that was a good thing or bad thing. I don't know. But um, he asked her about, well, how much, you know, what do you understand it'll cost for you to get a van? She said a million dollars. Oh my goodness. I, I, I <laughs> and, saw that mentioned in the closing. <laughs> and the jury started laughing. And that's when I felt like, okay, they like her because they started laughing, you know, and yeah. she laughed. I'm sorry. I, I, no, I think Jerome said, I don't think you meant a million dollars. He said, no, I, I meant 68,000. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she was, you know, she had been affected mentally a little bit, wasn't as sharp as, you know, maybe she was at one time, mm-hmm. but she really was. There was some good testimony from her friend about what a caregiver she was. You know, she took everybody to the doctor and did everything for people that couldn't do for themselves. And now she's relying on somebody else to do that for her. Yeah. So was, yeah. She was funny, though. Yeah. Well, and that was the thing that made me think kind of circling back to what we were talking about in the beginning in terms of the, you know, the jury's finding on the verdict form that this was not emergency care. You know, I think part of that was because they were on board with you. They were on board with her. And but but because of that, you know, it ended up giving you this issue that you had to address on appeal, luckily, successfully. Um, But I think it was even in a short verdict form like that, it was very evident that they, um, you know, that they wanted to support her and, and, and support your side of the case. I try to ask um, different people. I think it, it becomes clear to a jury when I ask different people, did you administer ACLS care? Do you know what that is? That's emergency care, right? You didn't intubate anybody. You didn't give epinephrine or atropine or anything like that. And I think that's how most people think about emergency care. And that really is, I think the intent 
you know, for that type of that statute was right. uh, that description. And I think most people understand that, you know, right. but, uh, you know, that verdict form, I look at that verdict form and it, like you said, it was very short and straight and to the point, you know, yeah. we had lots of haggling over that. And then I think of another verdict form we had on another emergency case where the it was a call to Aquana that ended up being uh, she was paralyzed. It was five pages long. Oh my yeah, and I thought, how the hell is anybody going to get through that? Yeah, <laughs> they did. So, yeah, and it worked out and they didn't. You know, I'm trying to remember if they found gross negligence or not. I don't remember now, but yeah. it was so it's, much. It's tough at trial because you do all that work leading up to it. You're obviously doing it all that work when you're there. And then, you know, towards the depending on your judge and what they've required pre-trial towards the end you're having that charge conference and arguing about the verdict forms and you're so exhausted. Yeah, it's so important. They're so important, but you're so exhausted. It's just like, nobody wants to deal with it. Oh, it's just, I always dread that, that charge conference phase in particular, because you know, it's been days of not a lot of sleep, not a lot of food, lots of stress. That's true. true. You can't give up then. I mean, that's like, you can't ruin it all at the charge conference after all your hard work. Well, you know, they, um, the defense offered a hundred thousand dollars to settle this case. Oh my God. So that was a real easy decision. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And, uh, the adjuster left halfway in the trial. So it was, uh, yeah, they wow. offered her a lot. I think they offered her $2 million at some point. And it was interesting. I was like, hell no, we're not. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, and then I'm going, oh, God, what if, you know, what if we don't win? And then she could have had that money to take sure. care of her. And, you know, we all threw our two cents in about it but it ended up obviously being her decision yeah she didn't want to take it and i'm glad she didn't yeah yeah mm-hmm. um i i did want to ask you because I, I was interested you said there are two main defenses was this pulses thing which we've already talked about and then gross negligence and i guess from a defense standpoint that seems like kind of a hard defense to argue because on some level you might be arguing that yes, we're negligent. We're just not that negligent. And, uh, and I'm yeah. and no, I can't imagine a defense lawyer really wanting to do that. How did they try to argue the gross negligence standard in this case? And, and did they, did they admit any type of negligence? I mean, you, you no. said that they, you said that they had given the wrong treatment for, for cellulitis. So, you know, at some point they got to say, yeah, that wasn't right either. But how, how did they handle the gross negligence defense? Well, it was interesting because just what you said, okay, you've discharged her. You, you know, everybody admitted in deposition. Yes, she was stable. And they admitted that she was not emergent, which was kind of, I think, what you were having trouble with. (laughs) What was the defense? Yeah. Because you're saying she's not emergent, that you're not having to do what would really be emergent care you've said she's stable and you've discharged her home but yet you're saying that you gave slight care and it was emergency care because it was in the emergency department so you're entitled to gross negligence and the clear and convincing standard which is why you know i think we in the affidavits and in depositions and i think if you i mean 
I don't know how many times I said clearly and convincingly or clearly in my closing, but I know know (laughs) Virgil did also and um, that it was just, okay, make them focus on that because we knew the the judge was going to give both jury instructions, ordinary negligence and gross negligence, and they were going to make a decision. And if they made the decision that it was gross negligence, we wanted them to be able to find that, okay, it was gross negligence enough that we win, we proved it. And, you know, we had our experts address it that way, that our clearly and convincingly, you know, the evidence was clearly and convincingly that he should have done this and should have done that. So I don't know how else being that that was one of the first cases really dealing with all that, mm-hmm. that changed, you know, changed the law, I guess, so to speak, so that the jury gets to decide whether it's ordinary or gross. It's not a matter of law for the judge to decide right. unless it's just, there's no dispute whatsoever. Right. 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 So. I, I did want to mention, um, cause I really liked, so, so we've already talked about the fact that you uh, talked about differential diagnosis and the four steps of differential diagnosis and took everybody, it sounds like you took every witness through it and that's why the jury knew it so well, <laughs> but you, you, you also had a nice theme, um, that I wanted to make sure we mentioned in your closing argument, which was, you mentioned three points. One was the do no harm. Um, and then the pain points to the problem. And uh, and then listen to the patient, which in this case is so important because the patient was being so adamant that she needed to be uh, admitted into the hospital and, you know, was complaining of eight out of 10 pain, even with being given morphine, as you pointed out. But I just thought the the use of those three themes in sort of developing the case worked really nicely, especially in in this case. Well, I think. If you, I know y'all probably do it in board hour too. You, if you ask the jury, how many of you felt like your healthcare provider, whether it's PA or nurse practitioner or physician, doesn't listen to you or didn't listen to you at one time? Everybody's raising their hand, right. you know, about that. So it's a common theme that everybody can connect with, you know, that, yep, they weren't listening. And, you know, the part that was kind of, uh, I guess an exclamation point on that was that her son was so adamant and arguing so loudly for her to remain that they called security on him. And she was crying, saying, I'm hurting, please let me stay. So, I mean, this wasn't just somebody who came in there and complained and said, okay, and went her merry way. I mean, they were doing everything they could short of admitting herself to the hospital to try to get them to recognize that she didn't want to go home. She knew that she needed more help Mm -hmm. and, you know, they just didn't give it to her. Um, You know, the one thing about Matt lines that was kind of fun uh, was that I knew somebody was going to say it one day. I was just waiting for it. And he did it. And he said, well, you know, when we're emergency room doctors and we hear hoofbeats out in the hall, you know, it's more likely than not when we're talking about differential diagnosis, it's more likely than not horses, not a zebra. I said, said something to him like, well, yeah, Dr. Lons, but if you're wrong, the zebra's going to run right over you and flatten you, right? Mm. And he went, <laughs> yeah. 
And so that's why that came out later. Got you know. it. Uh, yeah. I think I gave everybody for Christmas a zebra. A little zebra. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I saw that reference in the closing about, you know, this doctor coming up there and talking about horses and zebras. And then sometimes it's a zebra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, and that's why, because I just, when they say that, it just drives me nuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, well, Tracy, this has been just a great uh, discussion. Um, I want to remind everybody, we've been talking about the Ellen Wadsworth versus Gregory Hallen, PA, and Paul Postian, MD in Georgia, EMI, uh, medical services PC case that uh, was in 2012 and resulted in a $5 million verdict from Tracy and her team. Tracy, is there anything uh, that we haven't had a chance to talk about about that case that you want to make sure our listeners know about? Um. I will say that, you know, we were very fortunate to have GTLA do an amicus brief when we, when it was appealed, you know, um, we were, we made the defendants obviously put up a bond. They ended up paying an extra 500 and something thousand dollars in interest, which I was glad went to Ellen and, you know, was certainly helpful to her. Um, it was just a great experience. You know, I think, uh, when you get, like I said earlier, when you get to try cases with various people and uh, you click and you have a good time doing it and you're able to help somebody, then that works well. Um, yeah, Virgil likes the movie um, Tombstone. So mm -hmm, we were yeah. quoting that a lot when we were sitting <laughs> around at one or two o'clock in the morning and he sent me, we used to say all the time, okay, I'm coming, but I'm bringing hell with me. And so <laughs> I have that in my war, in my conference room, a big metal plaque that says that with the cowboys on it. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I love that. I love so kind that. of a tribute to Ellen. So we still hear from her and keep in touch with her and um, just glad that you know, everything. I can't remember. It's been a while since I talked to her, but usually uh, every few months or so, we touch base with her and see what's going on. Oh, that's wonderful. So well, thank y'all. Y'all were great. I enjoyed doing this and love what you do and appreciate you doing it. It's a great learning experience for well, everyone. I think I learn a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. And, and we really appreciate and really appreciate you sharing. Let me uh, remind everybody, we've been talking to Tracy Delacona from the Delacona Law Firm in Macon, Georgia. And you can look up Tracy at DelaconaLaw.com. That's D-E-L-L. A-C-O-N-A law.com. Tracy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you guys. Enjoyed it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, 
Or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.